Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. This is our 21st episode, and we're going to delve into accountable care organizations, which in short, and at least as originally designed, are doctors, hospitals, and other care providers across the continuum of care that are usually organized as a separate legal entity, but who come together voluntarily to deliver coordinated, high-quality services to patients in a defined geographic area. Now, accountable care organizations, or ACOs as they're known, are a recent development in the healthcare space, having been ushered in under a relatively brief portion of the massive 2010 law, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Now, at a high level, ACOs that deliver quality care without needless duplication or avoidable errors and spend healthcare dollars more wisely are rewarded by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurers by sharing in those savings. Now, what is interesting and perhaps the most challenging for ACOs is that they bring together competitors and sometimes adversaries that must trust and rely on one another to achieve effective, sustainable change. Individually, the healthcare providers in an ACO might not share the same priorities and values. Consequently, cooperation as part of the ACO is learned over time, from data sharing to problem solving, which hopefully can result in favorable outcomes for patients. So, to share with us her experience with an ACO operating here in Arkansas is Miranda Morris, who is the market president for Allidade in Arkansas. She is a familiar face to me, of course, having also been the executive director of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. She earned her bachelor's degree in English from the University of Central Arkansas in Conway and her master's in anthropology of gender, from George Washington University in D.C. Welcome to the show, Miranda, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Craig. All right. So before we get to the more serious stuff, and we always get there, what keeps you busy when you're not working? Well, I think like most people right now, I don't really know exactly what not working would feel like. Um, but, you know, in, in, in regular times, um, travel, I love to, to travel. That's definitely taken a back seat since COVID started. And so, where I've have really, you gone recently? Um, <laughs> we actually we went to um, the Orange Beach oh, yeah. um, this past summer. My my kids and my husband and I, um, and for our twenty second anniversary, which has been now postponed for two years, my husband and I are going. <laughs> it still happened, <laughs> right? Right, yeah, but it did not get celebrated yet. But we're going next month um, to take a road trip together in Scotland, oh, which wow. is where we got engaged. So we're yeah. pretty excited about that. A road trip. A so road trip. Where, where, where are you planning a visit? So we want to go to Isle of Skye. Uh-huh. Um, we've got a spreadsheet, of course. I've been to Edinburgh. Um, yes. Well, Edinburgh is where yeah. we got engaged. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so we're had, had lots of scotch there. Very <laughs> excited. You'll have to give me some recommendations on that. Um, but since COVID started, I've really gotten into cooking, um, particularly like baking. 
Like, what, what is this thing with baking in everyone? It's science, yeah. man. You can be very creative <laughs> with it. I love macaroons, and you would love these too, macarons. I'm not saying it right, but so because they have almond flour, they're very. You can be very creative with them, like huh. with the fillings and with the interesting the shell itself, and they're healthy or relatively or well, or <laughs> I mean, you know, they're good. All right, so uh, I asked this of all of our wonky guests. Um, and I know it's a hard question, but what would you say is your theme song? It is a hard question. I still haven't come up with mine. I can't. I can't. So, it and I thought about it a lot. I so theme song. Um, there's a song that a colleague of mine sent to me recently um, called "Arkansas" by Chris Stapleton. Uh-huh. Do you know yeah. the song? Yeah. Um, and in the song, he talks about driving in back roads in Arkansas. Yeah. He talks about one stoplight towns. And I mean, I grew up in Blackwell, Arkansas, where it was a no stoplight town, but we did have a granary and two liquor stores. Um, and I, that was really my, my youth was was sort of especially as I got older, driving around through the bottom roads yeah. down in Atkins. And um, and I could could not wait to leave Arkansas. You know, I thought anyway, went away to grad school and missed it like crazy. And now it's almost like with my job full circle, I mean, I spend a lot of time driving yeah. around to these little one stoplight, you know, rural towns, and I get to hang out with the coolest people in yeah. this town. So I love the gritty <laughs> sort of locality of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I love those back roads. Um, so tell us a little bit about Alliday. What what does the organization do and, and where does it operate? I know, I know it's in Arkansas, but, but where else? Yeah. So um, what we do essentially is we empower um, primary care value-based transformation. Um, and so ACOs are a big part of that, but they're not the only part of that. Um, we work primarily with um, independent primary care community health centers. In Arkansas, we're actually piloting working with small regional health systems, um, but it really is all about trying to help transition to value-based care. Um, we're operating right now 60 Medicare ACOs around the country. Um, we're in 42 states, but we have a nationwide strategy. Give us a year or two and we'll be there. Um, and about 100 or so other value-based contracts, other types of ACOs or other types of shared savings contracts. And, and by, by value-based, you mean, of course, cost and quality. So there's some quotient there between the two that... It's cost and quality, but I mean, a key component is also that we take on risk. Um, We don't get into deals that we don't think that we can improve care, um, you know, improve quality, but also, yeah, help to reduce waste. Okay. Um, So who all participates in the ACO here in Arkansas? Um, And and give me a... Give me a pitch to a doctor if, if, if they're out there and wanting to be a part of an ACO. What does that look like? Sure. So we've grown pretty rapidly in Arkansas over the last couple of years. Um, we have uh, 48 independent primary care practices and FQHCs. That equals about 180 clinical site locations. We're in 86 communities around the state, um, around 400 primary care physicians, a number of other specialists that are, are sort of adjacent to our network. Um, and we're piloting as I said, partnerships with two small regional health systems, very special ones in the state. Um, the pitch is, is, is pretty elegant in its simplicity. It's, it's, it is hard to scale all of the infrastructure that you need to really take on risk and really manage all aspects of patient care or to quarterback it. And so we have a pretty extensive toolkit of things so that we're able to meet practices where they are. 
Um, we know that payment is is transforming. We know that we're not going to get paid. Fee for service is not a viable pathway. And so we stay really nimble. And so ACOs right now, they work really well. We've got great results in them. But we look at other types of payment arrangements too. And so for a smaller practice or even for a smaller health system, which is why I love working with those, um, they, don't ne- they, they can't necessarily scale that. You know, our senior vice president of policy often says um, a small practice can't afford to employ an SVP of economics, but it's really nice to have the cell phone number of one. So we create that economy of scale by having, you know, having these things that practices can access. And what are what are what are those things? So if I'm if I'm coming to you and I'm saying, I mean, clearly getting some savings, getting some money um, by doing the right things. Uh, for my patients, that's clearly attractive, right? So what are those things that help me to get to that and improve patient outcomes, but also kind of take the the administrative load off of me as a as a physician? Yeah, so there's there's three domains really that we focus in. One is data. I mean, you can't really do coordinated care without having good access to data. And physicians don't want to really look at the data. They don't want to look at data. Some of them don't. And actually, you know, one of the the problems right now is that they have access to loads and loads of data. But whenever you have so much data, it becomes meaningless. And so um, for, for primary care practices particularly, I mean, they may have 30 different portals that they would need to log into optimally to be able to access all of the data about a single patient encounter. And so um, what we do is with the data aggregation, we have one single point of care platform and we pay for it. This is another thing we because the interface costs right now for managing all of that data are, are steep yeah. and out of reach of most individuals that are not inside of large health systems. And so we forward fund all of that integration. So mm-hmm. the data is a key element, getting it all together in one place that's actionable and physicians um, helped us to design the platform that we use so that right in front of them, point of care, the data are there. Um, the second is is what we call practice transformation. Um, I have folks that go into practices and work with them on workflows, work with them on really every aspect of running a clinic, um, running an FQHC, um, really helping to support the things that have to change whenever you start doing value-based care. And then the third is policy and advocacy got a fantastic policy team that does sort of like the regulatory analyses. Mm-hmm. You know, payment models are complicated. They change all the time. Most doctors did not go to medical school to really learn about benchmarking methodologies. So our policy team keeps that easy for them. And then advocacy, too, as a subset of policy. Okay. So so your role specifically, what what is that as, as market president now? Um and I, I know you have your hands in the in the data as well, but tell me a little bit about your role for for someone who you know might want to pursue a career in doing something like this. Tell me yeah, about it. Yeah, so I mean, it's it is really fun. It's different every day, and so as market president of this market, I'm in charge of all aspects of everything that we do in this state. So um, that means growth. That means performance and operations. So it's, it's like running a small business. It's like right? running a big business. Really. It's like running five small businesses because <laughs> yeah. we actually have five cohorts of ACOs oh, in the wow. state. Okay. Um, so I have five boards that I work with. Um, but, you know, some days it's spending hours digging through data, trying to sort out what's happening with a spike in home health in a certain region. Mm-hmm. And some days it's sitting in meetings with payers and talking about how are we going to modify methodologies to try to make things, you know, 
more survivable during COVID. And then other days it's driving down to Dequeen to take people's blood pressures at a health fair and talk to patients and talk to um, folks that work in clinics to mm-hmm. make sure that what I'm doing is supporting what they want to be doing. Okay. So I know that, of course, the pandemic has changed <laughs> everything for all of us. Um, when you look back over the last year and a half uh, during the pandemic, what what has it changed for the ACO and, and then also for you professionally? Well, for the ACO, um, it is it has definitely been transformative. Um, we've we've leaned in considerably. Independents, I mean, they're independent for a reason. Um, they tend to be relatively competitive. They aren't often all that well networked. They sort of live on islands depending on, you know, if they're part of other groups. Um, whenever COVID hit, our office managers, administrators at practices asked us, my team, to start pulling them together to have a weekly forum. And, you know, initially, you remember, there was just, there, you didn't know anything. Yeah. It was just, everyone we was sort dark. of, yeah. yeah. And, and so we started holding this forum. Folks started talking to each other. They started trading tips and tricks and information. Um, and it grew to the point where, you know, I had a practice in Benton that called and she had a lead on some N95s. And this is when nobody could get them. Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, my company actually ended up investing um, more than a million dollars in buying PPE practices all over the country. We're just in in pretty dire straits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a practice in Benton that called and said she had a friend who was a pharmacist who had N95s. And I was able to drive there, get those, take them up to northeast Arkansas. Um, practices looking out for each other. And even FQHCs and independents and FQHCs are in like different orbits usually, right? They're federally qualified health centers correct, for, our, correct. for our listeners. Apologies for the acronyms. <laughs> Tell myself not to do that. Yes. So, so the community health centers essentially yeah. are our safety net here and everywhere. Um, they tend to be in, in different orbits, though, from the independents. Um, but as they started to get to know each other, even they started to lean in. I had a health center who helped to provide vaccine access for an independent in a county without a hospital that wanted to do a vaccine drive and was having trouble, trouble procuring it. So, I mean, the, the sort of development of a network and, and of a family, as hokey mm-hmm. as that sounds, is what's, I mean, yeah. you know, sort of the silver lining of the very, very complicated cloud that was 2020. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I routinely complain that managed care approaches have a life of about 10 years and that they have diminishing returns over time uh, such that in the in the latter years of their lives, the harm to quality and access for patients actually outweighs any cost savings. So tell me how the ACO model is going to be different than what I've seen historically. Well, so first of all, we're not operating... I mean, we're, we're not a managed care organization. Certainly. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit different. But you manage care and you coordinate care. We do. We right. do. And and I, and, I, and I think that you're not necessarily wrong that if you focus on a very specific segment of a population, there is going to be diminish, there, there are going to be diminishing returns. But that that piece about accountable and accountable care organization, who's accountable there? And so one distinction I would draw immediately on that is that there's two basic types of ACOs and and without trying to get too wonky, although I guess this is the space where that's okay. Um, so there's what are called high revenue or um, 
hospital-led ACOs uh-huh. or low-revenue physician-led ACOs, and those get very different results. And in Arkansas, we've mainly only had high-revenue hospital-led ACOs. Um, what Allidade does is physician-led low-revenue ACOs, and it really changes who carries that accountability. Um, for our groups here in Arkansas, that accountability is carried often by an independent primary care doctor that owns his practice or her practice. They're you know, very, very situated in their community. And so it works very differently. Um, also, and this is true across the country, but, but very much more, more, I think so in Arkansas, it's been a huge focus for us. We don't just do Medicare. We're really working toward full um, panel management because it doesn't work for a clinic to have to think about, well, if this patient has Segments this insurance, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And if this patient, yeah, we, we don't want that at all. We want to be able to give good quality care to every single patient, regardless of pay or regardless of coverage status. Well, and, and for some of the some of the physicians who you work with, I'm sure, you know, and particularly in rural areas, they're not they're not pediatricians or they're not geriatricians. You know, they're right. they're family practitioners. So they deal with the entire population. That's exactly place. right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that is another thing since since COVID started, they've had to flex so much. And the grace with which they've done that has been extraordinary. Um but but in terms of, of other payer contracts, bringing in value-based strategies really helps those practices to be able to take accountability for the care. I mean, it, it becomes a word that actually has, has real meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, um, some of my colleagues published a paper in the American Journal of Managed Care, and it's a cohort analysis. And so we looked at our 2016 cohort. Um, looked across four years and did not see diminishing returns. In fact, we see those results continue to improve in terms of things that really matter, things like reducing hospitalizations, um, ED visits, you know, things that are definitely tied in with costs. So we're we're very optimistic about the model. Um, and particularly here in Arkansas, I think um, we're moving into this moment in Arkansas where the Comprehensive Primary Care First program is ending. So um, the federal, federal, uh, medic, uh, through CMS, right? It's Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Correct. It's been a, a really a major cornerstone in Arkansas of how primary care is paid. Um, we're of course resubmitting our Medicaid waiver at the end of this year, or, or have it submitted. Will will take effect at the beginning of next year, and so there's just a lot of change mm-hmm. around the way, especially primary care, but community-based physicians in general are going to get paid. And so helping them to really be prepared for all of that transformation hitting at once has been my focus. So um, I, I really ask this of everybody. What, what is the most interesting or successful experience um, that, that you've had while you've been at Alliday? So I think, um, like I said, whenever COVID first hit, it was like a, you know, we were all deer in the headlights. What are we going to do? Um, and almost immediately, we saw a significant reduction in office visits. And, yeah. you know, most primary care community-based type clinics, they, they don't operate on, on really high margins. Um, and so having office visits for a week or two that plummet is, could, could be nearly catastrophic. And so um, what Allidade did was we took a bunch of people, dozens of people off of their regular jobs and told them, go figure out telehealth. 
and they mm. worked miracles. Within two weeks here in Arkansas, we had every one of our practices access, and almost all of them were regularly using telehealth with their patients. Clinics where I would have told you... Never going to happen. Yeah, wildly <laughs> unlikely. Um, we had docs, I mean, that, that were... We, we provided a, a course um, where we helped the docs to be able to learn how to do things like bring in a caregiver to do certain things around physical exams. But that incredible pivot that, mm-hmm. that these folks did to telehealth and the patients too. I mean, I was, I was proud. I was blown away. <laughs> um, I still look at those data and, and marvel at what it, they accomplished. What if, so that's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I, I've seen some tapering off of, the use of telemedicine. What, what does that look like in, in the practices that you see? Yeah, so it varies. I mean, telehealth is a, is a fantastic tool, but it, it needs to be a tool that is part of some kind of accountability structure. And so I think where you see it tapering off is areas where there's good access. There are you know folks that have the ability to see physicians in person. I, I have been really heartened in some of our more rural areas, um, again, some of those clinics where I would never have thought that it got started, that we don't see as much of a taper. Um, so I think it's it, there, there's a lot of work to be done there. There's definitely, you know, going from the sort of hustle, get it done, get it out the door, to really thinking strategically about where do you bring it in and, and where do you not. Um, but I think I'm optimistic yeah. about how it's going to fit in with value-based care going forward. That's good because I really do think it's here to stay. Oh, absolutely. So they don't adapt. Absolutely. It's going to be difficult to access. Um, what are some policy changes at the at the state or the or the federal level that could really help doctors and ACOs improve patient outcomes? Oh, this is my favorite topic. <laughs> um, so at the federal level, um, we talk a lot about something called the rural glitch. Um, and what the rural glitch is, is it's really sort of, and this is, gets real wonky, So, um, but it's an, a, sort of an accounting nuance in the way benchmarks get calculated in Medicare, such that if you, and it's particularly, we see this a lot in Arkansas. In fact, I have a practice in South Arkansas that, that really contends with this. Um, your own patients and your ACO are incorporated in the way your benchmark gets calculated. Mm-hmm. And so if you lower costs year over year, then you're essentially lowering your own benchmark. Um, it's something that could be fixed relatively easily in the physician fee schedule. It doesn't even require, you know, a huge uh, legislative effort, but it has a big impact on rural practices and especially docs that want to do, you know, really high-level comprehensive value-based care. Um, at the state level, we have a um, independent physicians policy committee that is really working right now on mandated minimum primary care spend, which is an initiative that's you know been yeah. in several different states around the country. Um, again, in Arkansas, because we're coming up against this moment where we have historical payment models that are going away, comprehensive mm-hmm. primary care plus, um, the PCMH programs are going to be yeah. changing. Um, it is, it is really, really important that we pay attention to what impact that's going to have all the way across the state. And so mandated minimum primary care spend essentially says, let's look at where we're investing healthcare dollars across all payers, and let's make sure that we're putting in enough upstream in primary care that we're not having to spend a fortune downstream in acute ex- exacerbation. Yeah, because normally or, or historically, the spend increase has gone to hospitals and, exactly. and pharmacy d- drugs. 
Right. So redirecting that spend to primary care could perhaps bring those costs down, right? We think so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate you coming and, and being on the show. And thanks for sharing about Allidate and all the ACO work in Arkansas. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. You too. Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode, and again, thanks for listening.